We are in Mark 16. We're going to look at verses 1 through 8, the significance of an empty tomb. Before we discuss Sunday, it's probably best for us to go on to Friday night. Take you a couple of days back, two or three days, if you will. Christ has been crucified. Christ was, at that time, was hastily, hastily buried. The Sabbath was about to begin. John 19 takes us there, but I'll just give you the scenario. Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus had taken down Christ from the cross. They were allowed to do so by Pilate. They would, at that point, have cleaned him, wrapped him in a linen shroud, applied spices upon him. People have wondered, how, what would those spices be like? Well, perhaps stop thinking of your spice cabinet for a moment and consider that these spices were, they were myrrh and aloes. So it was liquid form. And they would take it and they would apply it to the body as they wrapped him in linen, in the linen shroud. The Egyptians practice embalming. We do as well. Not the Jews, though. No, spices were there. And if you wonder, why would they apply spices to the body? Well, um, the growing decay that occurs with the death of the body. And it was used to cover up the body in a way to honor the dead. So we're talking today about the significance of an empty tomb, Mark 16. But before discussing the significance of an empty tomb, we should really first do something else by way of introduction, and that is to just dismiss the sort of ridiculous theories of those who seek to deny the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Quite honestly, it's better that they just dismiss the person altogether than try to dismiss the resurrection theories, because those theories are quite silly. The first one that you might be aware of is the wrong tomb theory. The wrong tomb theory, the reason why uh, they couldn't find Jesus is they just went to the wrong tomb, which is not believable. Uh, when you think of all of Jesus' best friends on the earth, or if you will, all the people that wanted to be Jesus' best friend, on the earth, including all the apostles, disciples, all the women, they all went to the wrong tomb? No, I don't think so. That one's pretty bad. The next one is worse, and that's called the swoon theory. Swoon, it means to faint. Um, so this one goes like this, is Jesus didn't really die, according to this theory. After being beaten with soldiers' fists and sticks, uh, and whipped with a cat of nine tails. Thorns were driven into his head, nailed up on a cross for six hours, bleeding and suffocating by asphyxiation. Jesus is taken down, wrapped in a linen shroud, covered with 75 pounds of myrrh and aloes, which according to John 19, that's the, that's the amount. But by the time they got him in the tomb and closed it, he wasn't really dead. Crazy. He just fainted, according to this view. Then, sometime later in the tomb, Jesus woke up, moved the several hundred pounds sealed stone, fights off the guards without a weapon, and escapes into the night. Ridiculous. And finally, the third one, and this is the one that was actually spoken of in Scripture, that when, they, when the soldiers came to the high priest and they said, nothing like this has ever happened before, and they said, listen, we're going to give you money and you're going to say the body was stolen. 
And many Jews believe this to this day. And just to be clear, this sort of crime of grave robbing did occur. And yet, let's think about this for a moment. The way a grave robber would do it is he would come in and he would steal any treasures left inside. Jesus was a poor man. He didn't have any treasures. Uh, At this time, what happened is he might steal the body, and in turn, he would put another body in its place, perhaps a wife, a son, or daughter who had just died. And this grave robber's way of thinking is, if I can't afford a nice burial for, for my family, I'll just steal theirs. That's what they would do. And yet, think about this for a moment. For the apostles to steal the body of Jesus Christ while the guards were asleep? And remember, if you fall asleep, if you're a guard at that time, what's the result? Death, execution. And all of them were asleep, according to this view. And then, supposedly, they went out and proclaimed Christ's crucifixion, only to get murdered for preaching Christ's, quote-unquote, fake persecution. It's ridiculous. People don't die for lies, by and large. And by the way, another couple of points of of this is grave robbing was against the law. It's capital punishment for stealing the body or stealing any treasures from the tomb. One other thing, on top of everything else, the apostles weren't even looking for a resurrection. They were in hiding at the time. But there was a group of people that were not in hiding, And they remembered Jesus saying these words. In Matthew 27, it says the Sanhedrin, they caught the words that Jesus said when it said, he said he would resurrect after three days. So they had the Romans post a guard to make sure Jesus' disciples did not go and steal the body. What's so interesting about this is the Sanhedrin, who are not followers of Christ, had some understanding of this three days later and to be resurrected, whereas his own apostles just discounted it and forgot it because it didn't fit their paradigm. Finally, one other aspect is Matthew 28. Let me take you right back to um, Matthew 28, verse two through four, where it says the guards were there, uh, the tomb was sealed, and behold, there was a great earthquake. For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven, came back and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. So you can imagine this, can't you? An earthquake, angel of the Lord is right there. He looks like lightning, moves the stone. I think it's really interesting. And then he sits on it as if to go, what are you going to do about this? And then the men become like dead men, which means that they, in all likelihood, they just fainted. They just blacked out for fear and just fell over. Have you wondered why remove the stone? Maybe as a small child, you might think, well, in order to let Jesus come out. No, no, no. It's very clear in the Gospels that Jesus, in the resurrection body, he's able to walk through walls, transport himself in this way. And so the idea is let's open up this tomb so other people can look in. And what are they looking for? Jesus, and what do they see? Empty tomb. What is the significance of an empty tomb? Let's take a look at it. Chapter 16, verse one and two, this is the word of God. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, the mother, Mary, the mother of James, and Salome 
bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. So we see here the Sabbath was passed. Jesus, it's showing us that Jesus has been in the tomb for a while. And it makes you wonder, where are Jesus' apostles? They're hiding. They're in hiding. And so instead, we have these courageous women that go to the tomb, the same ones that were at the cross, which requires quite a bit of courage, if you will. Remember, Jesus was seen as a lawbreaker by the authorities. And we know for a fact that two of these women had already visited Jesus' tomb on late Friday evening. So they knew where the tomb was. There was no doubt where the tomb was. And here we have Mary Magdalene uh, in Luke 8. We see that seven demons had come out of her. Talk about a dark past. For those in here that might be listening and going, well, I haven't had seven demons come out of me. So point of it is, is that the Lord saves all different types of people. And we have Mary Magdalene is fascinating that Jesus allows her in the book of John to be the first to see the risen Christ. We also have Mary, the mother of James. It's James the less is the term used in scripture. That means he was shorter or younger than James uh, of the James and John, sons of thunder brothers. And then we have Salome. Salome was the, seems to be the mother of James and John. They had bought spices on Friday in preparation for uh, anointing Jesus' body, but they hadn't done it yet. Why? Well, the Sabbath was coming, and you don't work on the Sabbath, and so they had to wait. And at this point, you might be wondering, well, Jeff, didn't you just tell us a few moments ago that Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus already anointed his body? Well, yeah, they did, and it seems that they did it well. Well, why are these women coming back to anoint his body also? Well, maybe you've forgotten which group Joseph and Nicodemus were a part of. The Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin, the same uh, body of people that had condemned Jesus to death. And so these women were saying, we want to prepare his body for burial. And we want to do it right. We're going to honor him and bury him properly. Okay? It's the first day of the week. If you ever wonder, why does the church meet on, why didn't the church meet on Saturdays? That's the Sabbath. Well, we meet on Sundays because that's the day of our Lord's resurrection. It's happened every since, ever since that time period. So it happens very early. If you're wondering what time it was, uh, it seems that they left their houses before dawn, but they got to the tomb as the sun arose. So it's around 5 or 6 a.m. in the morning. And let's see what happens. Verse 3 and 4. And they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. Stop right there. Um, they've done a study on this, a gentleman by the name of Codier in a book that's about 20 years old. And this might bother you at first, but stay with me. They've calculated that 98% of the stones that covered the entrances to the tombs in Jesus' day were square, block stones. And they could still be noted as rolled away when you would move them from the uh, tomb's entrance. 
Well, why do we think that it was a large wheel-shaped stone? Because that's only what the wealthy had. Oh, but you know the story. Joseph of Arimathea was quite rich. He owned the tomb. And so there was probably a wheel-shaped stone that covered the tomb. It was five to six, wheat, uh, five to six feet wide, weighed hundreds of pounds. And the women, as they're going there, they're saying to one another, as a matter of fact, it's in the imperfect in Greek. That means they kept saying to one another, who will roll away the stone? Who's going to roll away the stone? And at this point, you're wondering, maybe they should have asked that question before they got moving on this, this deal. But you know what? Anybody, anybody been in love before? Now, you remember some of the just ridiculous things you did. You're thinking, what was I thinking? Well, these women are not in love with Jesus Christ. No, they worship him. They love him as their savior and their God. And certainly, they, they would love him as a friend. And they're not really thinking straight. The main thing, they're going, what are we gonna do? Who's gonna, how, can we women move this thing? And so the point of it is, is not, not only would they have to move the stone, but they're not aware of something else. They're not aware that there's a guard. There's several guards that they would have to fight off to remove, uh, to be able to get to the stone to remove it. These soldiers by this time had taken off in fear. So here it is. The women are on their way. They've got their spices and they're filled with anxiety, complete anxiety. And yet these women had no reason to fear. And you know why, don't you? Well, they thought they had reason to fear because their Lord is gone. And yet he was with them all along. Certainly, we do that as well. Philippians 4, 6, and 7, I know many of you have memorized, be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and petition with thanksgiving and let your request be made known to God. You know the rest of it. But you know sometimes what we fail to note is verse 5. And you say, I don't know what verse 5 is. Well, context is so important. Verse 5, it says, let your gentle spirit be known to all. And then the next phrase, the Lord is at hand. And because we don't really know, is the end of verse five supposed to be with verse six or is it supposed to be with, with the earlier part of verse five? We don't know. But I think it's worth noting is that if it is supposed to be with verse six, the way it goes is like this. The Lord is at hand. Be anxious for nothing. Does that make sense? So... They're looking up. They saw that the stone had been rolled away. As a matter of fact, the Greek is really stronger. It's not that the, roll, the stone had just been rolled back. It's been rolled way out of the way. It's gone. It's there, but not even close to the entrance. Once again, for folks to be able to look inside. In verse five, and entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. <laughs> you think? They're going to see their savior, who's dead, their best friend, their master, and they walk in, and instead they see a guy, a young man, and it's not just that he is dressed in white robe, it's, uh, Matthew says it, he had the appearance of lightning. His clothes were like lightning. The, in Matthew 28, it calls him an angel, and I think it's worth noting about angels for just a moment. Angels are non-corporeal. 
What I mean by that is uh, they're spirits. They actually don't have a body like we do. And yet the Lord allows us to see images of them uh, appearing with wings, certainly, uh, or as appearing as young men. Sometimes when we see, uh, not we like we see it on an average daily basis, but in the Bible, that's what they see. Angels like we would think of uh, in, um, with wings, really large, or young men. I will tell you what they, we never see angels as. Those cute little baby cherubs that are by the, <laughs> the nursery, we don't see that. And some of you go, well, I think they're so cute. Yes, and they're figments of your imagination. They're not in the Bible, okay? So who is this young man? Well, we know it's an angel, and it's interesting. Why is he young? Well, think about it like this. Age does not affect angels. Christ says that we saints will one time, someday be like angels in heaven. Be very clear. You will never be an angel. You don't want to be an angel. Christ didn't die for angels, However, we will be like the angels in heaven, and he's referring specifically to marriage. We will not, this marriage covenant uh, doesn't continue in the heavenlies. And, but also, I think there's another application. It affects the effects of age. The reason why I look around and I look in front of the mirror and I go, ugh, things are changing. Um, you know? Yeah, you young people are laughing. Ha, 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 look at the old man up front. So you'll be there in a few years. Amen. Some of you older people, amen. amen. Why do we grow old? Sin. Sin. It's interesting. Hollywood knows something is not right. They know it inherently. When you take a look at gray hair, wrinkles, aches, pains, spots that are not cute freckles, they're marks of death. Be encouraged. <laughs> Even getting plastic surgery can only look, make you look young for so long. Why? Because we heard it in the garden in our first parents. On the day you eat of it, you will, in the Hebrew, die, die. You will surely die. And you can't help imagine Adam and Eve looking at each other and go, that death sound, sounds bad. What is it? I don't know. They found out, and we find out every day. But it doesn't affect angels. There's no effect there. This same young man, we believe, that moved the stone is the same one that is now sitting in the tomb. And by the way, I will tell you this. When you take a look at Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you do see different variations of the resurrection. They all agree, but some uh, the different authors focus on different things. And Mark just mentions this one angel, one of the other uh, gospels that says two angels. So notice this, they're alarmed. They've got some foreign young man that's in the tomb, not their Lord. And so why is he here? If you've ever wondered, why is the angel even here? I love what one of the commentators named Cranfield says in his work called The Gospel. He says, it may be suggested that the purpose of the angel's presence at the tomb was to be the link the link between the actual event of the resurrection and the women. Human eyes were not permitted to see the event of the resurrection itself. But the angels, as the constant witnesses of God's action, saw it. 
So the angel's word to the women, he is risen, is, as it were, the mirror, the mirror in which men were allowed to see the reflection of this eschatological event. We weren't allowed to see it. None of us, none of the humans, but God allowed the angels to see it so that they could be the conduit and say, he is risen. I saw it. Verse six, and he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him? The very first thing the angel says, don't be alarmed. You know, angels enjoy many things. I think they enjoy most of all doing God's will. But something else they enjoy, they really rejoice in the salvation of God's people. As a matter of fact, 1 Peter 1.12 says, when they look at us, uh, especially our salvation, it's, it's things in which angels long to look. It's like they're peering over a fence and they want to see. Why, do, why are we so interesting to them? Well, it's not because of our sin. No, you see, angels, it seems that they had one choice at the very beginning. You follow the Lord or you follow Satan. It was one choice and that's it. God's not sending his son to come die for angels. No, one choice and done. But for humans, look, God in his grace makes us into the image of God. He didn't do that for angels. Not only that, he would send his own son to die for these people. And so the angels want to look, I got to see this. Why in the world would God save this one? That one. I got to see this. So we have here, don't be alarmed. Jesus of Nazareth, you seek him. It's interesting they call him Jesus of Nazareth. I've been to Nazareth before. My wife and I were able to go. I've been told over there, it's not a pretty town. It's never been a pretty town, actually. And yet, interesting, Jesus is not ashamed to become one of us. He's Jesus of Nazareth. He was crucified. It's interesting also, he's not ashamed of how God used him to save others. And he certainly, Jesus, volunteered for it as well. But his shame has now become his, what? Glory. And I would look to each of us to say, to each of us today and say, neither should we be ashamed of where we come from or how we were saved. In the point of, I'm not saying that we... We're not big sinners because we are. And certainly there's a point of shame in a Christian life that he, when he sees this sin and he goes, this is not good. No, what I'm saying is what your background is, where you came from, and how the Lord saved you, that's all badges of honor. But not of you, but of honor of the Lord Jesus Christ and what he did for you. Galatians 6.14 says this, far be it from me to boast, accept, in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. So these angels tell him, he has risen. And literally in the Greek, he was raised. It's a passive verb. It's called the divine passive, showing you that Jesus was raised by God. He was not resuscitated like Lazarus. He was resurrected. It's a new body, incapable of death, perfect for eternity. 
1 John 3, 2 puts it this way. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. This angel tells him this, and then he says, he's not here. See the place where they laid him, and you get the idea that he pointed. Look, not here. Check it out. Verse 7. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. What is this angel doing? He's inviting them to a family reunion in Galilee. And he says, by the way, Jesus is going to get there before y'all do. But he gives this woman a command, these women a command. He says, but go. Y'all, go. And it's interesting, the Lord is, seems to be re rewarding these women for attending him on the cross, for being there at his grave, and he rewards them as being the first to go and tell of his resurrection. So what he's doing here is, is the Lord is entrusting women to be the first proclaimers of the resurrection. Now you should note in the first century what was thought about women. Jewish courts would not accept the testimony of women. They wouldn't. Greco-Roman society, women were treated as chattel, just stuff, not Christianity. As mentioned earlier about the false views of the resurrection, listen, if you were going to make up a story, if, the, if this Bible is just made up, this is not what you would say. You would never say that the women were the first res, uh, witnesses of the resurrection. Oh, why would you do that? No one's going to believe that. And yet it's showing you the veracity of Scripture. It's true. And he tells them this. He says, go, and then he says, tell his disciples and Peter. We'll talk about that. But it intimates by him saying, go tell his disciples that the disciples are forgiven already for abandoning Christ. And they all did abandon him. It's interesting because Mark is the only of the four Gospels that says, and Peter. And Peter. Peter. Well, remember, the Bible's written by the Holy Spirit. In this book, Mark, it's written by the hand of Mark, and yet, through church history, they will tell you that Mark's recollections were Peter's. If you will, you could say the gospel according to Peter when you read Mark, because Mark is writing what Peter has, has said, and of course, by inspiration of the Spirit. Peter, of all the apostles, was a complete failure. Although they all abandoned him, Peter specifically was the one who denied him, his master and best friend, even denies knowing him. Unless you think that he just denies to three people, that's wrong. It's like three separate episodes of him denying over and over that he knows him, even going so far as pronouncing a curse upon himself if he actually knows this Jesus character. And yet we see here some incredible applications. And I can take three applications we can draw from the fact that, that this angel says, tell the disciples and Peter, as if to say, even that guy who denied the Savior, you let him know that we'll see him there. We see three applications. Number one, I think it shows that Jesus delights in showing love and mercy. He delights in it. 
Micah 7.18 says, who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. And if it's true of Peter, it's true of us. We've all failed miserably in following the Lord. We've grieved him by our actions, our attitude, our lack of trust, our desire to have my plans take place in my life instead of the Lord's plans. And yet he keeps calling you back, calling you back. Secondly, we see Jesus calls you by name. John 10, 27, it says, my sheep hear my voice and I call them and they know me. Surprisingly, Christ, uh, by way of the angel, doesn't call Peter by his old name, Simon. Did you catch that? No, he calls him by his new name, Peter, Rocky, which is, the, which is what the name is, in essence means. I think it's interesting. Peter knows he has disowned Christ. He's turned his back on his master, his best friend, and yet Jesus knows that Peter longs to be longs to know that he is in fact forgiven. And he's not, for, it's interesting, Peter is not forgiven because he's so repentant. No, Peter is forgiven because of Christ. It's never us. It's always him. Finally, number three, Jesus wants Peter as well as us to know that he is our treasure, that we treasure him. Matthew 6, 21, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Your heart is nothing but a follower. Do you know that? I, told, I was told as a kid, you don't need to be a follower. You'd be a leader. Here's the problem. Our, our hearts are followers. And what do they follow? They follow whatever we treasure. Treasure your family. That can quickly, what turned out something so wonderful can turn into something very evil called an idol. You treasure your job, your heart just follows. Treasure your health, wanting to have perfect health, your heart just follows. It's a follower. And so that's why he tells us, where your treasure is there, your heart will be also. And what I mean by your treasure is what you desire. What do you desire most in life? C.S. Lewis puts it this way. It would seem that our Lord finds our desires or what we treasure not too strong but too weak we are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink, ambition, etc. when infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Continuing on, he tells the women, there you will see him. Forgiven, there you're gonna see him in Galilee. He does not say, you'll see him in Galilee, and yet you're gonna have to do some serious penance for what y'all have done. He doesn't say, he'll meet you in Galilee, where he will beat you like a, like a, like a rented mule for abandoning him. No. He's saying, go back to the beginning. It's grace. It's always been grace. It's not what you have done. It's what he has done. Finally, he says in verse seven, just as he told you, it's almost, you can't help but wonder if he's, is he kind of jabbing these women? Just as he told you, 
We don't know, but we see in Luke 24, 6 and 7, a little bit more of what the angel said when he told them, he is not here, but he is risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified on the third day, arise? And you can imagine the women going, okay, yes, we do remember that. Verse eight, and they went out and fled from the tomb for trembling and astonishment had seized them and they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. So they flee, literally they take off running. Uh, What's going on is they are trembling. It's the word they are shaking. I don't know if you've been there before. You're so so like perhaps in shock. Uh, and yet, they're also they they have this sort of astonishment happening. Astonishment is the is the Greek word ecstasis. It's where we get our word ecstasy. So maybe what they're scared to death of is they're scared to death. Is this really true? Is there any way this could be true? And they said nothing to anyone. Which, if you know the Gospel of Mark, that is rather shocking irony. Because all throughout the book of Mark, Jesus heals somebody, and he says, by the way, um, don't, don't, don't tell anybody. Just keep this you know, between us. And they're always going out spouting everywhere. All right? And yet now, the angel tells them, go and tell. And they're like, shh, nothing, nothing, say a word. <laughs> they remain silent. And as you note in the other Gospels, it didn't last long. Soon they couldn't stop themselves. They tell the apostles, he is risen, and then we have Peter and John running to the tomb. By this time, Jesus has appeared to Mary Magdalene. We'll see in the book of John. But we don't see, in Mark 16, we don't have a direct account of any resurrection appearance. You can keep reading, verse 9 through 20. You don't have a direct account of any sort of dialogue why, leave, why did Mark leave this out when there are other stories of it in Matthew, Luke, and John? It makes you wonder, did Mark mean to end the gospel at the end of verse eight? There is a debate, and it's a really large one, that the external and internal evidence suggests that perhaps verses nine through 20 were, were perhaps maybe written by another person, uh, maybe another apostle, that added that to kind of finish out the, the apostle, uh, rather to finish out the book of John. Uh, maybe Mark wrote it himself. There's, there's some debate. Just to be very clear, we have a reliable text. Um, it's all good. I'm not trying to shake anybody up here. Uh, we have a, the word of God is inerrant. It's without error. But there's that view that maybe Mark meant for it to end at verse eight with just sort of this shock and awe Well, when you see how Mark's book begins, it doesn't say anything of Jesus' birth. It goes straight into the life of Christ. He very well may have meant for that to end if, in fact, he did finish writing at verse 8. If he did, though, think about it like this. What is Mark trying to show you by inspiration of the Spirit? What does an empty tomb mean? What's it mean? And these women away, they went away in shock, fear, and astonishment, they didn't get to see the risen Christ here in, in, at this part of Mark. Perhaps it's showing us that we are actually are not saved by sight. We're saved by faith. 
I mean, Moy couldn't do it, and I can't do it. Here, folks, if you wait afterwards, we'll show you pictures of the risen Christ. We've got images from the first century. We're never going to show you that. Why? Because we don't have them. Thus, the importance that one of these days, the Lord will call you up yonder, and you have believed something you have never, ever seen with your eyes. I'm not trying to bother your faith. I'm trying to show you the God-given aspect of your faith. Faith is a gift of God. You believe in this. You hold tight to this. You worship this man, God-man, because God gave you that gift. There's many conclusions you can draw from this. I'll just give you four, and we'll close with the gospel. Number one... What does an empty tomb mean? Number one, it means Christ was telling the truth when he said he was God. Only God can pay for sins. Only God rises from the dead. Number two, Christ's payment for sin was sufficient. Hebrews 10, 12 says, when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. If you have come to know Christ as your Savior, your sins are forgiven. Past, present, future. As one of the, uh, my old seminary professors used to say, Christ uh, has paid for your sins, sins that you haven't even thought of committing yet. Number three, the Father did not forsake his Son. Ultimately, he raised him up. On the third day, Acts 2.24, it says, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. And then number four, one day you, if you are in Christ, will be resurrected from the grave. Why? Because it is not possible for you to be held by the pangs of death either. I just said just a second ago, only God can rise from the dead. And you're like, wait a second. Well, what I meant by that is that if you are in Christ, if you are in the Lord Jesus Christ, that means you are in God. He is God. Then you yourself will be raised from the dead as well. 1 Thessalonians 4.14 says, Since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. If you were to die today... God forbid, but if the Lord should take you home today, if you are in Christ, we know for a fact that your body goes to the ground either by um, many different ways. Don't worry about it, though. The conscious part of yourself goes to be with Christ, with the Lord, at the moment of death. And yet, it's interesting, God, when he made us in the garden, did he make us just spirit or body? No, he made us body, but then he blew in the breath of God. Interesting in the Greek and the Hebrew as well, breath, wind, spirit, all the same word. Makes sense, doesn't it? And we know that one day, even though we will be seated with Christ in the heavenlies, in the soul, it's gonna be awesome, and yet even then, there's still a longing to be with the body again. So put it like this. If you're a believer, when you die, if you were to die one day, you won't be leaving the land of the living you'll be leaving the land of the dying. You go to the land of the living. And even better than that, even better days are ahead for you because one day your body will be resurrected.
So if you are new to Grace Church, or if you just came in because somebody invited you, I'd like to end with the best news you've ever heard in your life. And it's what we call the gospel. And sadly, the word gospel means many different things to different people these days, and I'm just gonna give it to you straight from scripture. First off, let me give you the bad news. Stay with me. You're a sinner. Sin is anything you think, say, or do that's not pleasing to the Lord. We've been doing it since we were born. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen, what? Short of the glory of God. You were meant to glorify God with your life. You just were. That means you were meant to honor him. You were meant to put him first in life. The problem is none of us do that. That makes us a sinner. Our first parents were sinners. We're born sinners. But it's not only, it's not only we're born sinners, we're actually sin as well. So it means you're not, you're not just a sinner because of genetics. You're also a sinner because of choice. And you go, wow, well, that is bad news. I'm, I'm glad it doesn't get any worse. Au contraire. <laughs> the Bible says in Romans 6, 23, the wages of sin is death. And you say, well, we all die physically. Yes, and that is part of it. But according to scripture, it's very clear. Jesus says, depart from me. I never knew you. And where are you departing to? The Bible is very clear. It's called the lake of fire. We don't, we don't move away from that. We don't go, it's too disturbing. We don't say that in church. No, I have to give you that. Why? Because Jesus talks about hell more than any other person in scripture. He knows what he's talking about. He created it. Why do you go there? Well, because you have to pay for your sin. Well, when can I get out? Well, I'll ask you another question. When can you pay for your sin? You can't. That's the problem. There is no expiration date. The Bible doesn't say you'll live forever. It says you'll die forever. It's horrible. And yet God loves his world so much. Here's where the good news comes in. He loves this world so much that he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to live the perfect life that you and I could never live. Y'all, listen, he followed the Old Testament law perfectly, never sinned, never did anything displeasing to the Father. It says, Romans 5, 8, God demonstrates his own love towards us, and that while we are still sinners, Christ died for us. Martin Luther called it the great exchange. When he was on the cross, he took my sin, and then... After he rose from the dead, the idea is that he gave us his righteousness. So when God looks at me, he looks at me through blood-covered lenses. He is looking at me through the blood of Christ in the sense that because he, his son died, I got his son's righteousness, and his son, Jesus Christ, got my sin. So he died on the cross, and he, he basically took the wrath of God the wrath that should fall on me fell on his own son, Jesus. Well, that's great news. And some people would say, well, I'm a Christian. I, I believe that intellectually. But the Bible's very clear. Even the demons believe and shudder. They believe that Jesus is the son of God. Of course they do. They think he's the salvation of the world. And yet the Bible says in Ephesians 2, 8, 9, for by grace you're saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one should boast. It's not intellectual assent. It's trust. You're actually trusting in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation. So if I were to die tonight and stand before God and he would say, why should I let you into heaven? I would say, you shouldn't. I've broken all your commandments. But there's a man, the God man sitting right next to you, 
named Jesus Christ. He died for me. And even that is not the end of the day because we see that one day Jesus Christ is coming back and he's gonna do three things. He's gonna make all things new. He's gonna give resurrected bodies of those that are in him. That means they've trusted him alone for their salvation. And number three, he's also gonna judge. He's gonna judge. And you wanna make sure that you will one day be judged by your savior and friend, Jesus Christ. And, and even that will be just a matter of judging us for the good works but not as a way to gain salvation. No, as a way to throw our crowns at his feet and glorify him even more. But if you are not in Christ today, you will appear before Jesus one day as your judge. He won't be your friend though. He'll be the guy that you rejected your whole life here on earth. You don't wanna be there. As a friend to you, you don't wanna be there. Come to Christ today. And for those that are in Christ, we live for him. And we appreciate this incredible day that we can celebrate his resurrection. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks for the day. Thank you for your grace. Thank you most of all for the son, Jesus Christ, whom you sent. You didn't have to send him. We could have all gone to hell for eternity for all the sins that we have done. And yet, ultimately, you're out of your kindness and love, you called him forth, and he volunteered for it. And we see that he died, and he rose from the dead. You rose him from the dead, Father, and we will spend eternity with him. Eternity is going to be so much fun. We look forward to it. And until that time, help us to live for you. And also we pray that you would send your son soon. Come soon, Lord Jesus. In his name we pray it, amen.